wow, there's a lot in this passage. Uh, because we have the entire history of the Hebrew people in Egypt up until the time of Moses. And we don't know how long that time is. And so we could spend a lot of time talking about how Joseph's people were sort of discarded by the power structures. We could talk about how this is phrased. Uh, because, of course, Joseph was a slave in Egypt, and we wonder about the status of his brothers after he brought them down. We could talk about uh, the mechanics of getting the baby into the reeds. Was Moses the only one? We could talk about the history of Moses, and that we will talk about in a Bible study sometime, because Moses turns out it's a very complicated character. But in this story today, I want us to look at three people. I want us to look at Pharaoh's daughter, I want us to look at Pharaoh, and when I say three people, I really mean let's look at the Hebrew people in Egypt. Because as we are told, here we have the Hebrew people oppressed in Egypt in slavery. We are in slavery in this passage. We have a number of people who are so terrorized by the state that the Pharaoh can simply order people to kill their children. Now, if we know anything about U.S. history, we know that it is often not difficult to incite mobs, right? I mean, this happened. Uh, basically, every new immigrant group in this country at various times uh, were seen as threats by the people already there who'd established themselves. And so perhaps Pharaoh was just trying to play to his population. We don't know. But what we do know is that Pharaoh, in some way, felt threatened by the Hebrew people. He felt his existence, the existence of his people, were threatened, and so he reacted in increasingly harsh ways. First, he physically abused them. Then he ordered them to kill the babies. Then he finally said, okay, anyone can kill the babies. He continued to escalate the response to the threat that he felt. And I pulled out the midwives because we see in this story the way that it's told. It says, oh, the Hebrews outnumber the Egyptians. This is basically impossible. There's simply no way that that happened, and the reason why comes to the Exodus, which is that if even, even the numbers in the Exodus given suggest that in the most fanciful imaginations of the writers, a third of the population of Egypt went north. And so if that happened in the Exodus, it's unlikely that sort of they outnumber them here. And even that number is hugely inflated um, based on the records of Egypt. But we have the sense that at least in Egypt, we felt that threat. People felt that they were going to be overwhelmed by these Hebrew refugees. And so Pharaoh enacts all these harsh penalties responding to that threat. And the Hebrews feel that oppression. It is their children that are at risk. It was their lives that were made miserable. They live knowing the Pharaoh can do whatever he wants to them. And so in between these two people, we have Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter appears not to be part of the mob, or maybe she simply feels so secure in her position that she can make this conscience-based decision. We don't know exactly what she thought, but here's what I like to think she thought. I like to think she saw this baby in the river and thought to herself, I don't understand why my father is so threatened. Surely this baby will not harm us. And took the baby into her household. 
She felt she had no voice with her father, so she responded in the only way she could, by acting, by acting generously. And this was a good thing to do. But what is interesting about it is that if you know the continuing story of the relationship between Moses and Pharaoh, you know that Moses humiliates Pharaoh later on. It is not a matter of the Hebrew people rising up and overwhelming Egypt. They simply want to get out of town, and Moses is the one that leads them. So what happens is that because he cannot deal with the world around him that he sees, Pharaoh enacts all these policies that encourage people like his daughter to nod and smile and do something else. And this was the seed of Pharaoh's downfall. That this woman who felt she had no say, who felt that she might have something different to see in the world than the people around her, simply nodded and smiled and did something differently. And this was corrosive in Egypt. This was corrosive and led to the horrible humiliation of Pharaoh and finally to God bringing God's people out of Egypt. So the question for us is, we have these three characters, who are we? Because not any one of them is someone we particularly want to be, right? Who wants to be the Hebrews? Good answer. That's right, you do not want to be oppressed in slavery. It is not fun. Go ask the people in Ferguson, Missouri, how they feel. We don't have to be them, but they're here in this country. Who wants to be Pharaoh? Why not? Because I'm going to yell at you if you say you want to be Pharaoh. Good answer. But again, you know, Pharaoh had all this power. We don't want to be Pharaoh because we like to think we're better than that, right? We like to think that we instead would prioritize loving people and being kind to people. But here's the thing with Pharaoh. It snuck up on him. We see that there's a judgment of Pharaoh that he's cruel, but that's seen through hindsight. Is this pharaoh any different from the previous pharaoh? We don't know. We don't know if they are different in their character. What we know is this pharaoh faced different threats than the other pharaoh. So this pharaoh did things that he thought were reasonable steps. Oh, these people are outbreeding me. I'm going to enslave them so I can control them. Oh, they're still outbreeding me. I'm going to treat them more harshly. You know, surely then they'll fall into line. Oh, they're not doing it. Well, I guess I've got no, no, nothing left to do except to kill them. He's a desperate man. And so whatever he thought he was like, whatever he thought he was doing, he was carried by it into a situation that caused untold oppression. And the danger for us is we can do the same thing as we take a step. As we take a step, we can say, well, you know, we have a country, we have a social safety net, and it's designed for taxpayers. And so we need to have an immigration policy, right? And so we say that, we say, we'll have an immigration policy, and that's a reasonable thing. And then we look around and we say, well, okay, but it's not working. So what we'll do is we'll put armed guards on the border to make sure that people can't get in. We say, well, that's not working either. So we'll have you know, an increasingly militarized state down in Arizona, and we'll see if that helps. That helps a little bit. And then we say, well, but what happens if they sneak across the border as children and then just grow up here and take everything. So we'll take all these people who are fleeing from death squads and send them back. And so we go from a very reasonable position to a very unreasonable position. 
This is what Pharaoh does. And so we need to be careful that we're not Pharaoh. We need to be careful of what's going on. And the way to do that is to listen to Pharaoh's daughter. Because who here has ever felt like Pharaoh's daughter? Who here has ever felt like you were in discussion or debate? Maybe right now at this moment in this church, listening to me, that your voice was not heard, that your voice would be shouted down if you spoke up. Show of hands, who's ever felt that way? Thank you, Lois, thank you, Becky, thank you, Marlis, thank you, Ryan, thank you, Ken. All the people raised your hand because that's what she did. And the consequences for the Pharaoh were very bad. Consequences for the Hebrews were very good, but how much better would it all have been if that daughter had been able to speak up and say, Pharaoh, father, are you sure that killing a bunch of babies is what you want your legacy to be? Right? That conscience of someone standing up and saying, no, no, this is not an okay thing to do. In Ferguson, Missouri, if someone stood up and said, perhaps there's a better way to fund city government than through escalating fines for jaywalking, as they do in Ferguson, Missouri, which is part of what led to the entire situation. Perhaps if someone said that, we would not have had a massive conflagration. But someone needs to be comfortable saying that. And that's where we all come in. And that's where Jesus has a lot to say to us. Because one of the things that it means to be a welcoming church family is, first of all, we're family. We love one another. And it's tricky because we choose our family here, which is different from our biology. But we love one another. And in some ways, we're stuck with one another. If we're not stuck with one another, we're not actually family, right? Come on. And that means we can disagree. That means it's all right to think that we should do something different from everyone else. That means it's all right to be able to say, hey, look, no, what about this idea? That has to be what it means to be a welcoming church family. We need to welcome people who say things that we don't agree with and find a way to talk about it. To talk about it, to keep on loving one another, and if it comes to it, sit next to each other in the pews, praying for God to enlighten that other person. Because we know they're wrong. That's what it means to be a welcoming church family. It means to not be in the situation that Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter and the Hebrew people found themselves in. It means finding a way not to oppress people, not to have people feel like they have no choice in the world, not to have people feel like they have no voice in the world, and not to pretend to listen, but to actually listen, to understand what people are saying, to work to understand what people are saying so that we can all come together. If you read the New Testament, and if you've been here with me these past two months, you may think that I never read the New Testament, but if you do, you will see Jesus challenging his friends. And you will see sometimes his friends looking really dumb because that's the way we wrote the Gospels. But they're still there. Now, I'm not saying that you can get away with being quite as harsh as Jesus was. I think we should have a thought for each other's feelings. But 
disagreement was something that happened. And they incorporated the disagreement into their lives together, and they figured out where they were going. And that's why we have religion today. That's why we still have these books today that we read. Because even in their disagreements, they wrote it down, they moved on. They wrote it down, they worked on something new. And that's what it means to be a welcoming church family. Not to erase dissent, to keep it in mind, to figure out a way to go forward. This does not mean that the church does nothing. Right? The church has to make decisions sometimes. And sometimes we have policies, and sometimes we have things that we say, and we say, look, this is what most of us believe, and so we need to find a way that those who don't agree with it and don't believe in it still are able to worship with us and be a part of our body because we need to do things. If everyone in the disagreements of the early church had simply said, well, we're not going to challenge what it means to be a Jew, if we're not going to challenge Peter on the dietary restrictions of Judaism, if we're not going to challenge and push back and have disagreements, we'd have no church. Decisions must be made. But we can do it in love. We can do it asking for God's will. We can do it understanding that we are all humans and disagree and love one another, but that we can find new ways to live because this ultimately is the hope that Jesus brings us. Both in the teachings that show all this diversity of thought and also us remembering humans killed Jesus and put him on a cross. But Jesus conquered death showing us that we have the hope for eternal life, showing us that what is happening here is not the end of the story, that the story goes on beyond us. It's not about us. It's about the world. It's about God and God's story. And as we seek to love one another, we are remembered that we need not have fear of death, that in God we will never die alone. And so together we journey together. We mark each other's beginnings and our middles, and our endings, together as a church family. And Jesus reminds us that we are not the beginning of the story, that the story did not begin in slavery, does not end in slavery, but that the story has slavery in its middle. The story begins with God and ends with God, and if we feel oppressed, and we feel enslaved, we need to remind ourselves, this is not the story. This is part of the story. And we move on into love and into hope, living as if we need not fear death. So as we go out into the world from here, I ask you, stand up and say, when do I feel like Pharaoh's daughter, unable to speak, able only to undermine the policy by this little act? When do I feel like Pharaoh as if I am so oppressed by other people that there is nothing too horrible I can do to them? And when do I feel like the Israelites beset and beset and beset? Remember that Jesus' lesson was this. We are all brothers and sisters, and no one deserves to be oppressed. No one deserves to feel that way. And so ask yourself, how can I love? How can I love one another and move forward so that no one has to feel like this again?